May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, Lord, our Savior and our God. Amen. Well, if you want to find the source of an awful lot of Christian idioms, look no further than Acts chapter 9. This passage is pure gold for all kinds of sayings. Blinded by the love. A Damascus Road experience. Why do you persecute me? Which, by the way, is probably what I should have said to Ryan when he assigned this text to me. Ryan, Ryan, why do you persecute me? The story of Saul's conversion, Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul, is certainly the most noteworthy in the book of Acts, probably in the New Testament, and dare I say, one of the most stunning in all of church history. It has been the subject of spectacular medieval art. It's been the inspiration of many Christian hymns. It's been the longing of a lot of experience-seeking Christians. Gosh, it even made its way, this part of this story, even made its way into Johnny Cash's very iconic song, The Man Comes Back. This story of Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion, is legend. So far in the book of Acts, there's been two meaningful, personal Testimonies, can I say? Recountings of individuals' endeavors to lay a foundation for the future mission of the church. The first was Philip, who seems to have been teleported out into the middle of the desert. And he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch on his way back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip comes alongside of him and tells him the story of Jesus through the eyes of the prophet, and the eunuch is baptized. The second, of course, is the story, which I suspect you've studied quite recently as you work your way through the book of Acts. The story of Stephen, who stands up and in about a 10-minute speech, summarizes more than a millennium of Jewish history and recounts the entire story of the people of Israel and coming up to the person of Jesus. And then he wraps up his speech with these charming words, to his audience in Jerusalem, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, opposers of God's spirit, persecutors of the prophets. And in the finale of Stephen's story, he's dragged out of the city and he's stoned to death. But those two stories seem to lay the foundation, the footing, for the, the creation, the, the, the birth of God's mission of this nascent church. Now it's time to bring, bring things really about. And it begins with this incredible story of Saul on the road to Damascus. And it followed up promptly in chapter 10 with the equally miraculous story of Cornelius, who is the first Gentile convert. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but the very first word from Evelyn when she began reading the passage a moment ago was the word Meanwhile, meanwhile, which should always perk up our ears. When something big is about to happen, in the midst of something else taking place, and the word meanwhile shows up in the text, ah, you want to pay attention, it's coming. As Terry was driving down the highway, listening to his music, meanwhile, a vehicle in the incoming traffic. Now, I don't even have to finish the story. 
as the woman returned to her home from visiting the doctor, hoping that everything would be all right. Meanwhile, the doctor's office received a report from the cancer center. And you know that something is significant is about to happen. Something big is about to happen. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, it's that curveball that nobody saw coming. It's the unexpected twist. I've come to realize so much of our lives really are caught up in the, what follows the word meanwhile. And that's exactly what happens with the Apostle Paul. This is why I refer to this story as God's great reversal. Nobody saw what was coming. As a matter of fact, it's actually quite the opposite. In this accounting of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, and then the two other stories that are told later at times it's recounted in the book of Acts, what we learn is that the church was bracing for persecution and lynching at the hands of Saul and the temple guard. We read in verse 1, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of our Lord. This is the language of a raging beast, a ferocious beast. Saul, the destroyer of the church, ravaging the body of Christ like a wild beast. No wonder the disciples were afraid. Can you, are you surprised that Ananias didn't want to go to the house where Saul was waiting for him? Lord, I've heard from many people the evil this man has done to your saints in Jerusalem. This wild beast, this oppressor, being brought down through God's great reversal. John Calvin summarized the story of God's grace in Saul's life this way. He said, God's grace is manifest not only in such a cruel wolf being turned into a sheep, but also in that sheep assuming the character of a shepherd. This is the great reversal from a wolf to a sheep to a shepherd. As I mentioned, what transpires on the road to Damascus and subsequently on Straight Street in Damascus, which is actually, believe it or not, still a street in the city of Damascus 2,000 years later, where Saul's sight is restored and he receives this commission to preach the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, is so stunning that Luke recounts the story three times. Here, in Acts chapter 22, when Paul is preaching to the Jewish tribunal in Jerusalem, and then later on in Acts chapter 26, when he recounts the story of his own conversion to King Agrippa, the Roman potentate. There's a few minor changes in this story, a few little details that are different. But what is constant is this essential character of a supernatural explosion of light and a voice saying to him, why do you persecute me? You know, when, okay, when I grew up, I used to read stories about Nikki Cruz and the cross and the switchblade. Some of you may know those stories about a, a gang lord in the city of New York and how he miraculously comes to know Jesus through the witness of uh, um, David Wilkinson. And when I used to hear those stories of stunning conversions, especially those gritty, hardened people, real reprobates, I'd say to myself, well, it wasn't like that for me. I never had anything happen like that. Gosh, I remember when I gave my life to Jesus as a child. I was actually sitting on a stool in our kitchen 
and my mom and dad told me about Jesus. And I probably accepted Jesus because it was a friend of the rapture, which was part of their ploy, I think. It worked. I gave my life to Jesus, and I followed Jesus ever since. My wife, on the other hand, it wasn't the case. My wife grew up here in Edmonton in a non-Christian family, and she actually did hear a quiet voice. The first time she ever went to a church, she was sitting in a church just off White Avenue. I can't remember, I'm sorry. I don't recall the name of the church. She was sitting in, the, in a balcony during a revival that said swept across the prairies in 1970 to 72. And she was hearing an evangelist. And at the end of the service one Sunday evening, she heard a voice behind her whispering to her, go up and go forward. And she did, and that was her first encounter with Jesus when she came down from the balcony and went to the front of the church and gave her life to Christ. Many of our friends are unable to pinpoint any place or any specific time when they chose to follow Jesus. They just knew they belonged to Jesus. And I hear of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, this blinding light, this voice saying, why do you persecute me? Paul becoming, Saul, I'm sorry, becoming temporarily blinded and speechless, being guided by the hand to an unknown destination to him, losing his appetite for three days. We rightly can ask ourselves, are there any elements of this story that are normative? Like, should we expect something? Should we have expected something like that? Or is this strictly unique to his situation? And what is typical in a time when we are incredulous about everything, when we suspect everybody from recounting false truths. At a time when religious and any type of experiential jolts are downplayed or questioned, we would do well to remember that God does not speak the same way to everyone. He chooses different ways. And likewise, as, the, as has been stated by many people, as the center of gravity of the Christian church has shifted from the global north to the global south, people's experiences, the dynamics of group, spiritual encounters vary from place to place and from time to time. I recall my own shock the first time I ever prayed with a group of Dalit Christians in Hyderabad, India at a seminary. And the way they prayed, their experience of prayer was so radically different to me. It made me initially feel very uncomfortable. And then I realized, but this is how they are experiencing Jesus. And it wasn't like what I knew, but it was okay. This is what God chose to do for them. We hear the stories, well actually I'll tell you this. The story of God's intervention in North Africa and the Middle East nowadays is very common. It's very similar actually to what happened to Paul, where people have visions and apparitions and people encounter kind of a, a mysterious light or presence and they choose to follow Jesus. Several years ago, my wife and I were traveling through North Africa in the country of Algeria. Now, when we were missionaries previously in France, working with Muslim, uh, Muslim followers of Jesus, we would ask them, many of them were from Algeria and Morocco, and we would ask them, how many Christians, how many Christ followers are there in the country of Algeria? Say in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And these believers would say, we only know of maybe 
150, maybe 200 believers, Christ followers in Algeria. It was a horrible time in the country of Algeria. But in 2017, when we were visiting Algeria, the church had grown spectacularly in the last 25, 30 years. There were over 150,000 baptized believers gathering in churches that had become recognized by the government. Things have become more difficult since then. And we asked what had happened in those 25 years that the church would grow from 200 believers to 150,000 believers in such a short period of time. And one day when we were in the Atlas Mountains, our guide, our guest, uh, our host, I'm sorry, took us up into the mountain. He said, I want you to meet somebody and hear this story. And so this time it's first act. And he took us up into the Atlas Mountains, into a village, and we met a school teacher who would have been in his, at this point, maybe in his late 50s. And he was introduced to us and we spoke together with him. And he told us his story. He was, oh, I don't even know what you would call a person in a, in a revival, but if it's in a sickness, you can talk about patient zero. Well, this is the kind of where the spark began of a great fire of the moving of God's spirit. And he recounted his story to us. I couldn't relate at first. He told us how as a teenager, he was an avid, avid soccer player. He loved the sport. He was very, very good at it. And he said, our team from our village was competing in a tournament here in the Atlas Mountains. And I wanted to be the star of the game. I wanted to win the cup for our team, but I felt deathly ill. I had no idea what had happened to me, but I had blacked out, I was out of it, I, I was shivering, I had a horrible fever, I was in my tent, I couldn't move, I wanted to die, I felt so sick. And I tried medicine and it didn't help, and I tried to rest and it didn't help, and I tried to hydrate myself and it didn't help. And he said, at one point some players from an opposing team from the city of Algiers came into my tent, and they, knowing that I was sick, and they said, have you ever thought to pray to the man named Jesus and ask him to make you well? And this man who was telling us his story said, I had no idea who the man named Jesus was. But I wanted to play soccer bad enough that I would pray to the man named Jesus if that could help. And I prayed, Jesus, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you are. But if you can make me well, please make me well. And almost instantaneously, this young soccer player was healed miraculously. And he was able to get up and play soccer with his team. I don't know if they won the tournament. But he attributed his healing to this man named Jesus. And after the tournament, he went back to his town. and He didn't find anybody who knew anything about this man named Jesus. But he kept searching. And lo and behold, he started hearing about people who could point him to a radio station that talked about a man named Jesus. And he began to grow in his faith as a follower of Christ. And then he began to tell others. And that person became the spark that began an immense revival throughout all of Algeria. 150,000 baptized believers in 2017. His story is unbelievable. He just wanted to win a soccer game. It's not the norm, but God chooses to speak to people and reveal himself to people however he chooses. But what I am convinced is normative in the story of Saul is that this is a story of God's grace. God doesn't leave 
Saul where he began. There is this great reversal. Saul's experience is a reenactment of the gospel story for all of us, where God disrupts our expectations with those meanwhile moments, and he changes everything. Imagine how Saul's life is disrupted in this story. From seeing, he goes blind. From being a confident prosecutor of Christians, he becomes the one who confesses ignorance, not even knowing who this voice is. From a man intent to lead prisoners back to Jerusalem in chains, he himself has to be led into Damascus. From being a man on a ferocious mission, as I said, he has to now wait word for his mission. From a man with great power to a man overpowered by Jesus. You see, this reversal is actually not the story of Saul as the subject, but rather it's the story of God at work. In those meanwhile moments, Saul goes from being opposed to God to allowing God to take control of his story, of his life, where God shows up in the story, reverses the intentions, changes the arc of the narrative of Saul, disrupts his plans, and sets things back in the right order. The other element, and we've heard it throughout the service this morning, and even sung it, that I think is noteworthy, is how God appeals to so many of Saul's senses in this experience. Suddenly, this man previously consumed by rage encounters God through a quickening or an awakening of his, of his senses, his sight. He goes from a man who can see to a man who is blind to a man who can see totally differently and new. Hearing, he hears a voice. Others hear a voice. But he himself is left speechless. Touch falls down. He then is led by the hand. And Ananias has to come to him three days later and touch his eyes and heal him. Taste. The passage says that for three days he couldn't taste, he couldn't take in any water or food. But the celebration of this commissioning that he receives is that he shares a meal in community with others. So I can't push my point because I can't find any reference to smell in the passage, so I will leave that to you to find. This morning, the question I ask you is this. What is God doing in your life? Where is God showing up in the meanwhiles of your daily routines? Where is he bringing about a change in the arc of the narrative, a great reversal? Where is God awakening your senses in ways that you had not expected? How is he opening your eyes to see things differently, to hear things differently? And what is God doing here at First Baptist Church Edmonton? How in this present time, ordinary time as the church calendar calls it, how is God shaping this church through a Damascus Road experience for this church? How is God awakening the senses of this church to see and experience him anew, and then to engage in his mission to which you have been commissioned in this city, in this country, in this world? 
This is why the words of Psalm 34 are so true. I sought the Lord. The psalmist says, I sought the Lord. Perhaps I can read it as we. We sought the Lord. And He answered us. And He delivered us from all our fears. Look to Him and be radiant. So your faces shall not be ashamed. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Happier those who take refuge in Him.